Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. This week, we're sitting down with John Farragon to talk about some updates to the perinatal guidelines from the DHHS, the Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks for having me, Mariana. And um, so it should be a good podcast today on, uh, I think, a timely topic, which is important to a lot of people, treating people who are might be pregnant or trying to get pregnant. So it's good. So let's dive right in. What's the latest that providers need to know about the new perinatal guidelines? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, the, the perinatal guidelines were updated in uh, early February, and it's a little bit a little bit late, but I know we had a lot of work with doing with COVID and other other podcasts that we did in the last couple of weeks. So I thought we'd just review them. They, they are kind of significant. Uh, one of the biggest changes that came uh, was the recommendations around the use of dolutegravir in pregnancy. So for those of you who've been doing HIV for a while, you may remember this, but um, a few years back, there was some safety signals um, for, for dolutegravir from a study in Botswana. Um, and basically in pregnant women who were receiving dolutegravir during pregnancy, um, they had this increased rate of neural tube defects. So neural tube defects are kind of hard to describe, but I would just basically say that this is one of the big signals that we worry about in antiretroviral. So back in the day, there was a drug called Favarins, which caused some of these back in the back in the day. So, we, so this is something that they, they monitor in some of these uh, pregnancy studies to make sure that, that this isn't happening with newer drugs. These events are very rare though. They, they um, in, in fact, um, the rate of this happening compared to other drugs studied uh, during pregnancy led to a lot of concern over the safety of dolutegravir in pregnancy. But what they've done is as they've gotten more and more pregnancies in the, in the, in the denominator of the, uh, of the N, basically the, the N of, of the denominator of people who've been pregnant, um, in further analysis, they found that the number of safers occurred in the study, this certain signal really turned out to not be as significant as we had initially thought. So, so initially, while we put all these warnings in the label, really these, these, these didn't need to be he really didn't need to happen. We, we, we at the, you know, now that what we know after additional births have happened, this is really not as much of a problem. So, so what the panel did, the panel of, uh, of, of experts that are on the guideline panel, um, now added dolutegravir back as a preferred ARV um, throughout uh, pregnancy, and now also added dolutegravir as a preferred ARV for women trying to conceive, all right? So, um, so again, this decision was based mostly on updated data showing that the increased risk of neural tube defects associated with dolutegravir is very small. And then the advantages of dolutegravir, including once daily dosing, there's some favorable, favorable tolerability, uh, and also the fact that it produces a rapid and durable viral load, um, all are important for, for maternal health and also the prevention of perinatal HIV transmission. So these are all important pieces of, of, why, this, of why this change happened. So I think really a big change in, in that the dolutegravir is now preferred in the guidelines here and reversing um, to some extent the, the big concerns that people had a few uh, years years back about its safe use in pregnancy. So that's kind of the dolutegravir story. There's, an, there's another older boosted PI. Uh, so again, a protease inhibitor um, is, uh, is a, a boosted, obviously a boosted PI, right? So that, that's a protease inhibitor uh, that's boosted. Um, but one of them that was frequently used is, is called lopinavir ritonavir. So many of you remember this, this is actually a drug called Kalitra. So this has been around for, for a long time. Um, this also had a status change and that this version of the guidelines, they, they actually downgraded it to not recommended except in, in special circumstances. And really what they've shown is that some of the data around Kalitra, the lopinavir ritonavir has shown increased risk of preterm delivery uh, and also small uh, for gestational age infants. So, so I think many of us who do HIV treatment uh, know that 
while Kletra, lopinavir, ritonavir was an important medication in the history of HIV treatment, it does require twice uh, daily dosing and potentially some dosing increases in pregnancy as well. It really has the potential to cause significant nausea and vomiting in patients. So again, just a, a few reasons why this may have been downgraded, but I, but I think that the safety issue um, uh, is really, really the, the, and the risks of, of preterm delivery and small for, uh, for gestational age infants is really the big, the big reason. So those are the, those are the first two big changes. And, and, and the third, the, the next change I think is significant um, because it's a common medication that we use in non-pregnant HIV infected patients, but now we may be able to use it in pregnancy. So, so Another important change is that the use of TAF, which is tenofovir alafenamide, um, which is in many of the combination tablets we use for H HIV, um, and many of us know that TAF has a favorable renal and bone safety profile compared to the older version of TDF, which is the, the old disoproxyl fumarate. Well, TAF has now been added, added as an alternative nucleoside um, reverse transcriptase inhibitor for ARV therapy regimens. So this is actually helpful because TAF has not really been on the, on the guidelines. So if you had somebody who was pregnant or of childbearing age and was, was wanting to get pregnant, there was some current concerns about using TAF in those patients. So, so now the, the, at least to have it in as, um, as an alternative, I think it is helpful um, because at least it's now, now uh, uh, addressed. And this, this data was really based on some additional data about the safety uh, and, and use of, of TAF in pregnancy has become available now. So prior to this, again, like I said, all we had was TDF, but now at least this is listed as an alternative. So if prior providers choose to use TAF, they, they can use it there, especially if women um, are, have, have renal issues or potentially if they, if they, if they do have some, some bone density problems. Now, most people who are younger usually don't have those issues, but it's still nice to know that it's at least on the guidelines. And as we think about some of the single tablet regimens, a lot of them do have TAF in it, so that might make things a little bit easier. Um, so, so finally, the last thing is some of the, some of the stuff from 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 Kobe Sistat. So, so Kobe Sistat, as as many of we many of us know, who do HIV is is a booster, right? And it's in, in particular, it's in darunavir Kobe Sistat, uh, and actually leads to uh, to a lot of um, a lot of uh, drug interactions. But so, what we found that in pregnancy is is that this might actually lead to low drug levels when you use cobicistat in pregnancy. And there's a risk of viral rebound in, in the second and third trimesters when using cobicistat in common with in combination with, with darunavir. And so while some providers may may choose to change regimens and avoid cobicistat, for example, replacing it with ritonavir as the booster instead of cobicistat, the new guidelines are recommending that some healthcare providers and their patients may choose to just continue with frequent viral load monitoring instead rather than switching to it to a new regimen. So really what this kind of does is it kind of says, well, we know the drug levels are gonna be a little bit lower and there might be a risk of viral rebound, but if you keep people on it, as long as you monitor them, they probably will be okay. And I think that's that's kind of the, the big gist of it. Um, and so this really just, I think, provides patients and the providers a little bit of flexibility and managing uh, patients who might be on, on a boosted protease inhibitor and, and not force them to switch off of cobicistat. I hope that hope that makes sense, but I mean, I think it's really, really key. So, so key pieces here, right? You have, obviously you have the dolutegavir, um, we have the downgrade for lopinavir, ritonavir, um, and then we have the, the information on TAF, and then finally the, the cobicistat story where you may not necessarily have to change them if you continue to monitor them. But I think real, all helpful, I think real, um, patient management clinical issues that I think come up in real life and real patients 
and it, this helps us to kind of manage those through some of those issues with, with these with these big changes. So I think the guidelines are still remain very relevant to our to our care of our patients, especially those who, who are pregnant or who are considering um, considering uh, conception uh, while HIV infected, while infected while you know for people living with with HIV infection. Aside from changes to the existing information, was anything new added to the guidelines? Yeah, so this isn't every single thing, but there were there was a new section that was added that uh, discusses some of the recommendations uh, and summarizes some of the available evidence about the rationale for PrEP. Um, and so PrEP, as you might recall, is pre-exposure prophylaxis, and really um, discusses its use uh, and safety in individuals who are trying to conceive or are pregnant postpartum or who, who are breastfeeding. So remember, PrEP is for prevention. These are, this is for people who are not living with HIV infection, uh, but those who, who may be at risk either through because their partner may, uh, may, may be diagnosed with, with HIV infection uh, or, um, you know, or they may be, may be at high risk. So specifically, the panel now recommends that healthcare providers offer and promote oral combination of, of, of TDF-FTC. So again, the tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate with emtricitabine, which is which is what we use for PrEP in women, right? Because we can't use TAF because there's no data. So it's t- so it's going to be Truvada for PrEP. Um, to individuals who are at risk for HIV and are trying to conceive or who are pregnant postpartum or, or breastfeeding and, and, and have and have a, a reason to be on, on PrEP. Just remember that I think you know the, the indications for PrEP include any risk factors for acquiring HIV. And this includes condomal sex with a partner with HIV. Um, whose HIV RNA level is detectable or unknown, um, recent sexually transmitted infections, or even injection drug use. All right, so those are probably the three big, um, big kind of considerations when you think about putting somebody on on prep, uh, especially in, in in pregnancy. Because these risk factors may be underreported, I think those who really report feeling at risk for HIV acquisition should really be counseled on the benefits and risks of, and probably most likely in most situations, be offered pre-exposure to prophylaxis. And, and I think the guidelines are really good in trying to trying to make sure that people are offered PrEP if they are pregnant. So providers are also encouraged here to counsel individuals about the risks and benefits of PrEP um, and, and their health, uh, and also the, the effective, potential effect of, of PrEP on their infants and uh, you know, the importance of daily adherence to PrEP and, and preventing a, HIV acquisition. This is really kind of an important piece now that, that's in the guidelines, really talking about specifically about PrEP in people um, who are pregnant, um, postpartum, or who are breastfeeding and may be at risk for for HIV acquisition for for some of these various reasons. Really, really important, I think, piece of uh, addition to the guidelines. So this is really, I think, um, from a prevention standpoint, it's probably the most important part of, of of um, of that prevention pillar that we talk about with ending the HIV epidemic, the EHE program that we're we're talking about, what we talked about before on, on the podcast. John, what about other co-infections? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so these are this is another update that happened, Mariana, which I think is good. There's some some information on uh, for patients with hepatitis B um, and and who are co-infected and are pregnant. To know for alafenamide is now included as an option. So as I told you before, for HIV treatment, TAF is now available. But we often forget that TAF is also um, effective in treating hepatitis B, right? So this has now been included as an option for the treatment of hepatitis B virus in HIV co-infection based on the panel's updated recommendations of TAF as an alternative non-nucleoside 
reverse transcriptase inhibitor. And again, this is this would be for people who are HIV, who are pregnant, or are trying to conceive um, and, and may have hepatitis B, uh, B co-infection. So instead of using TDF, which is the older version, now as an alternative, you could use TAF in, in those patients. So that's helpful. Um, and then for hepatitis C, you know, there's not much, much here, but Really, um, uh, hepatitis C um, should be strongly considered for, for treatment if you if you are if you are uh, um, uh, pregnant uh, with direct acting antivirals, direct acting antivirals for hepatitis C postpartum. So the panel recommends that for patients who have tested positive for hepatitis C and they have a positive hepatitis C RNA, um, after that's evaluated after delivery, they really should assess for spontaneous clearance clearance of hepatitis C. Um, as they're as they're being considered for initiation of hepatitis C therapy postpartum. So the bottom line, the, the gist of all this is basically that you know for people who do a hepatitis C, you would wait till they were they were their pregnancy is complete pregnancy is completed, and then you would potentially treat them with the direct acting antivirals after after they they deliver. But again, some people do spontaneously clear hepatitis C, so they may not need treatment. Um, but at least we know that there's a there's a recommendation now in there. Uh, in these guidelines about how to manage people who have hepatitis C during, um, you know, who have hepatitis C in, in our pregnancy. That's really, I think, an important piece as well. Ooh, all right. Lots and lots to digest here. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else we should know about this latest update? Yeah, Marianne, you know, you're right. There's a lot here, right? So it's a lot to unpack. Um, I think the summaries, I, I think, are are, um, are are helpful. They have like these summary guidelines in the, in the DHHS guidelines. When you go to the webpage, and you go to the individual guideline, there's always highlights of, of the new changes, right? And that's kind of what we're covering here. And I think it is, it is a lot to digest and hopefully, hopefully people will get um, some of the major key points just, just from what we're covering here. But, you know, there was a couple more things to, to these updates. Um, the ARV management uh, of newborns with perinatal exposure as well. So this is uh, talking about infants who are at high, high or low risk of perinatal acquisition of HIV. Um, with um, maternal risk factors for perinatal HIV transmission, viral suppression is defined um, as, as less than 50 copies per mil. Um, so what's important here is that, you know, as information about recommended antiretroviral drugs for, for infants um, uh, with perinatal exposure is now available in this table nine. So this table is really actually very important. I go to this a lot when I get questions from the maternal child group. That table has been updated, now includes dosing of dolutegavir. The dispersible tablets are now available. So that's a new formulation that's available for, um, for, for, um, for pediatrics. Um, and there's also um, uh, for, oral, um, you know, for oral suspension, and that can help um, replace lopinavir, ritonavir, nivirapine, or riltegavir uh, in infants who are at least four weeks of age and weighing at least three kilograms. So there's a lot to unpack here, but basically the dolutegavir dispersible tablets are now available and the dosing is listed there. So instead of using some of these different drugs that we sometimes use like lopinavir, ritonavir, nivirapine or valtegavir might be able to use dolutegavir as an option for, for some people, depending on their, on their age and also what their, what their weight is. And just remember that sometimes in the past, you know, we used to use these two drug, the two drug regimen of nivirapine and zidovidine, uh, but most are really using triple therapy now. And some of this information um, ha has been updated in the guidelines as well. So for those of you who've been doing this a while, you remember that, that you know, everybody, Zidovidine is pretty much always given to the, to the infants. And sometimes we would add a second drug, nivirapine. And sometimes we even use, we just use Zidovidine, um, lamivudine, or emtricitabine plus raltegavir, right? So the triple drug therapy, I think based on some of the studies where um, they've had HIV infected um, 
uh, potential, those potential cures that we talk about, that they've talked about for, for, um, for, for babies who are born to infected moms. A lot of them have been put on triple drug therapy. And that's really, I think, where some of this is coming from as well. And, you know, good, very good data to, I think, just not, not phenomenal data, but good data, at least, um, at least anecdotally to support what, you know, using triple drug um, treatment for, for the baby. Um, if, if the mom is high, if, the, if it's a high risk situation and the mom, you know, comes to, comes to pregnant, comes to the delivery with, with a detectable viral load. So really, so in summary, I think the big changes in my mind, I think of the dotecavir now being preferred, uh, lopinavir, ritonavir being downgraded, and really the addition of TAF as an alternative, both for, um, uh, both for hepatitis B, but also for treatment as an, as an alternative, but especially for those people who are co-infected. And also I think um, making sure that we're aware of the TDF being added as a, in, in a discussion around PrEP or, uh, amongst people who are, uh, who are considering pregnancy or who are, who are postpartum. I think these are, these are the big changes that I see that are really affecting treatment in the setting, in the setting, setting of pregnancy um, based on this guideline. So really a lot of information, but I encourage you to take a look at the DHHS guidelines. Um, if you just um, go to just Google DHHS guidelines, you'll, you'll come to the, the guideline portal and there's a lot of information that you can take a look at and, and, and review um, as you see fit. But I think these are the big the big changes I think in in, um, in, in these perinatal guidelines, which I think are, are important. And thanks for thanks for letting me cover them with you today, Mariana. John, thank you so much for joining us today and walking us through the new guidelines for people with HIV who are pregnant, trying to get pregnant, or breastfeeding. You know, with situations like these, it's not just the patient we're concerned about, but also the embryo or the infant. So, you know, I think it's critical that providers are up to date on the guidelines here. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nikaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.